Good evening, Mosaic. We're so glad to have you join us this evening. I'm gonna read this psalm over us as we prepare our minds to worship. So if you'll just read along with me. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Mosaic, would you stand and sing with us tonight? My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty Joy at your 
Would you have a seat and check this video out? One of the most important programs at the Samaritan Community Center is Backpacks for Kids. And even though the program only lasts for one day, its effects can be felt over a lifetime. That's because its goal is to equip at-risk kids with the tools they need to succeed in school by helping 4,000 children in Northwest Arkansas to have the confidence and resources they need to achieve an education, we're investing in the future of our state where it matters the most. As we gear up for the 21st annual Backpacks for Kids event, it's amazing to see our community rally together to make each year better than the last. And Fellowship Bible Church is playing such an important role in supporting our mission. From all of us here at the Samaritan Community Center, just want to say thank you. Awesome. Uh, well, hey, church. My name is Kyle. I'm the worship pastor here, uh, worship team leader, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, just a couple quick announcements while we're uh, still gathering and getting people welcomed inside. The first is Samaritan Community Center is doing a back-to-school drive. So they are in need of wide-ruled loose paper, that's kind of hard to say, tongue twister, uh, and plastic pocket folders with brads. Uh, well, if you want more information on it, go check out our website, and it will give you kind of more details on locations and times for you to drop off. Uh, the quick route would be just to find uh, one, of, one of your pastors, and we'll get you pointed to the direction to drop that stuff off. Um, the next thing I'd love to talk about, and this is very near and dear to my heart, um, after the welcome, is if you're new, text Mo new uh, to that phone number, but I want to welcome our residents. So I see one in here. Aaron, will you? Yeah, give us a wave, man. Um, is Ashish in here? Chaney? I see Chaney. Hey, Chaney. Um, and then Ashish, I think he might be actually uh, doing some uh, the class right now. Uh, but hey, we have a, a residency program that is near and dear to my heart. I did it in 2018, uh, and it was my first introduction to fellowship, and I fell in love with the church. Uh, it was a healthy place for me to come and recover, uh, but really what the residency is is these group of uh, fresh out of college uh, some of them students get to come together and do ministry alongside one another. They're not here just to, to 
do intern type of stuff, like make copies and uh, do receipts. They are here to fulfill a position that we actually have uh, on staff, and they are incredible. So I would just want to, uh, one, invite you to pray for these uh, guys and girls through the next year. Uh, and you'll get to know Ashish and Aaron uh, throughout the year, and we're excited to have them here. So we just want to give them a, war- a warm welcome. Reach out to them, take them to coffee, uh, show them all the love that you can. That's it. That's all I've got for you. Let's continue in our worship, church, as we sing uh, praises to our King. Would you stand as we, as we worship? Let's turn our eyes now to our God. Let's say this prayer together. This is a formation prayer that we're planning on saying throughout the rest of this rhythm series. So I invite you just to learn it and let it soak in. So I'll say this leader part. God, we join with your church throughout history in studying rhythms that will help us live and love more like you. Make Make us us more more like like Jesus. Help us, for we are prone to doing too little, withholding parts of ourselves from you. Father, expand our hearts. Make Make us us more like like Jesus. Help us, for we're prone to doing too much, trusting in our own accomplishments. Spirit, teach us to rest. Make us us more like like Jesus. Jesus. Give us the patience and perseverance we need to trust your work as you shape us into the likeness of your perfect son. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now would you worship together? Lord, I call, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart.
blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Cause our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Let's pray for our offering time together. Pray this with me. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gifts to us, your son and your spirit. How great the chasm that lays between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into Beautiful 
Hey, my name is Russell Patterson. Uh, I've been the guitar shepherd here at Mosaic uh, for about a year now. Um, and our reading tonight comes from 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. You all can take a seat. You know, um, when I read the story of David, there's so many things I can relate to. Uh, but, but one of them, just on the most surface level, is a really nasty habit I have, and it's of thinking that if I an- ignore a problem long enough, it will disappear. Um, and, and this plays out in a lot of really funny ways in our household, particularly there's a phrase that if I ever utter it, things go into red alert. If we, anybody ever raises a problem, and my answer is, I'm sure that'll be fine. My wife and daughter immediately know things will not be fine, and we need to take urgent action to correct the problem. So um, one example in the last year, gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it for this one, um, from some people in the room that are really going to mock me. So I had an older car, and older cars make funny noises, right? That's just what older cars do. And uh, Cassie and Karis have been riding with me, and they kept on saying, I don't think that noise is normal. I think that's a problem. And I said... It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So it increasingly makes this weird noise, and there's some, some lights on the dashboard that I'm like, those have always been on. And one day I get home from work, and Karis like, comes out to meet me, and she goes, Dad, I think there's smoke coming from under the hood. And I looked at it and said, I don't think so. And I go inside, no worries. The next, later in the week, I think it was, I'm driving back from Siloam Springs, and about halfway back, I hear a loud, kind of like a bang sound from under the hood, and then suddenly the car is like fighting against me, like it's seizing up, the steering wheel's not working, the dashboard lights up like a Christmas tree, and I'm suddenly realizing things are not fine. And I decide, you know what, it's like 10 miles to the auto zone, I can make it. And so I make it to this auto zone and I walk in and I go, <laughs> gosh, I go, hey, my check engine light is on. Can, can you come look at this for me? He says, yeah, no problem. He walks outside and like smoke is billowing out of the hood. And he just stops and goes, you do not need me to check your check engine light. You need to tow this thing to a mechanic. I had just completely blown the engine up. Like it was, that thing was gone. There was nothing to be salvaged in that car. Um, and this is, a, like, this is a pattern that has come up for me over and over in my life, that I just, I don't want to face a problem. I don't want to deal with it. Like, all the signs are there. Everything is telling me there's something that needs to be taken care of here, and I just try to go head down and pretend it will go away. 
There's a doctor in this congregation who made a comment to, to one of my friends. He said, you know, the number one killer for men in America is not necessarily heart disease. He said it's denial. He said, because over and over again, I will see patients in an emergent situation who had symptoms for months and months and months that they ignored. Because they didn't want to face the possibility that something serious might be wrong. So instead of addressing it when addressing it was very doable, they ignored it until they were in a horrible, horrible situation. I don't know where that tendency comes from. I don't know if it's just fear of facing reality, but there is a kind of insanity that, that exists when your car is making banging noises and smoke is coming out of the hood and I'm saying, I think it'll be fine. We're good here. And everyone else can see, this is not fine. And sometimes, like in the story we heard from David, it takes someone loving in our life to step in and say, hey, things are really not fine. Sometimes God uses a circumstance in our life to grab us and shake us and say, things are not fine. But what we're trying to do in this rhythm series is discuss what are the patterns of life that we can choose to step into that will enable us to grow into Christ-likeness. And one of those patterns we're gonna look at tonight is the pattern, the rhythm of confession. Because what the rhythm of confession allows us to do is do a regular check-in, to regularly acknowledge that things aren't fine so that we can get help right away. In one of the most formative conversations I've had in my years of working at Fellowship, several years ago, um, I was on staff here at Mosaic with the student team, and a couple da named David and Marie Westbrook wanted to have coffee. They just started visiting a little bit. And they said, hey, Nick, can we have coffee with you? I think I just preached the Saturday before. They said, we have some questions. And I sat down with them, and they just wanted to know more about our church. They were considering joining. And Marie looked at me, and she said, Nick, there's so much about this church that I love, but there's one thing I'm struggling with. She said, in the faith that I grew up in, the Christian church I grew up in, we, had, we went to confession every week. And that was one of the most beautiful parts of my walk with Jesus, was every single week I came to the Lord and confessed everything. And I received a promise of grace and forgiveness every week. And I've been observing your church and I've been trying to see when does confession happen. And she said, I'm a little, it almost seems to me like maybe you all bottle it up until you're so weighed down by guilt that you go and vomit it on someone. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much the way it works a lot of times. And in that moment, I walked away and said, I think there's something missing. I think there's a deep tradition and rhythm of regular confession, of a return to sanity where we make a practice of telling God and someone in our lives, hey, things aren't okay. And I need to admit it and get help. So we're gonna take two steps tonight. We're gonna look at a psalm, a prayer that David wrote in Psalm 51. If you wanna go ahead and turn there. We're told in the little opening heading to this psalm that he wrote this psalm in response to that incident that happened with Nathan. So Nathan confronts him, and then David goes and, and journals out his prayer. We don't know how quickly it happened. Maybe he did it the night of. Maybe 
over time, as he reflected, he put his, his prayer into psalm. But in some way, as a result of that conf- confrontation, David wrote a prayer. And the prayers in the psalms are given to us as guides for how we should pray. So because of David's experience, we now have a guide for how we too should respond to our sin. And so we're going to walk through this psalm as a guide for what it looks like to confess and what a heart of confession looks like. So the opening of the psalm in verse 1 to 2 is, is the, the prayer for mercy. And really, um, these first two verses, if all we had were these, verse two, these two verses, that would be enough to frame what confession is all about. These two verses function as kind of, if there was like a, if, if Hebrew poetry had a chorus or a refrain that you came back to over and over again, this would be the chorus. This would be the refrain. This is the key right here. David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. This is the opening phrase to this psalm, and I want to point out the, the grounds, the, the thing that makes it possible for David to pray this prayer. David is coming to God and making a request, and in the beginning of that request, he actually gives God the reason that God should answer this request. He lays out why he even thinks he can make this request, and it's tied up in two really important words. The first one is mercy, and the other one is unfailing love. That word mercy, the Hebrew root of that word is where we get our New Testament concept of grace. The word mercy means a kindness that you don't deserve. That mercy is tied to the compassion of God. David knows something about God's character. He knows that our God is the kind of God who shows kindness to people who don't deserve it. Now think about the significance of the opening words of David's prayer being, have mercy on me. Right out of the gate, he's acknowledging he doesn't deserve to be restored. He's saying, I'm not owed this. I'm not coming to you to God, make, coming to you, God, making some demand because you owe me something. I'm not trying to convince you that it's the right thing to do. I'm pleading for you to give me something I don't deserve. Because he knows that's the kind of God that we worship. The next phrase is that phrase, un failing love. And that's a really special Hebrew word. Um, It's the Hebrew word chesed. And what chesed means is it's this really special word that means God's, we would say covenant love. And what that word covenant means, a covenant, we, we still have covenants today. One of the most important covenants we have is the covenant of marriage. And that's a really good picture of what a covenant is in biblical times. A covenant is when two parties come into a new relationship together that is both legal and relational. It has both a binding oath and a commitment of love. And what God says is that he has made a covenant with his people, that he is binding himself to his people in love and binding them to him. So David's appealing to something else. He's saying, God, I'm asking you to give me something I don't deserve because you bound yourself to me. Because you are the kind of God who shows loyalty to his people even when they don't deserve it. That you never give up on your people. 
So Lord, I am appealing to your mercy and to your unfailing love. That is the foundation of every confession before God. Paul said that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And if, if your view of God is of a God who is eager to strike you down, confession will never be safe. Confession will never be a safe thing to do if you think God is looking for an excuse to punish you. The scriptures show over and over again that God is looking for an excuse to forgive you. God is looking for an opening in your heart so that he can pour out his mercy. He is looking for confession because he wants to bless his people. The other thing to notice is that by David appealing to God's covenant love, David's acknowledging that he's already in a relationship with God. He's already one of God's people. This was a big aha for me because I came to know Christ at a really young age. And so many people I knew, their kind of story of faith looked like here was all the horrible things I did before I knew Jesus, and then I came to know Christ and everything changed. And I really struggled with that because every horrible thing I did, I did as a believer. And so I had this really scary question. Yeah, sure, God forgives unbelievers when they sin, but what does God do with me? What does God do with my sin that I committed knowing exactly what I was doing? Knowing exactly the God I was sinning against when I did it. And and what David's example shows us is that there is no sin that will keep you from coming to God and there is no sin a believer could do that is beyond God's mercy and forgiveness. His mercy and grace and forgiveness covers the entire spectrum And it is on this foundation that David says, will you wipe my slate clean? It's a bold prayer. It's a bold prayer to come to God after David has committed the whole second half of the 10 commandments, he's broken them all. All the ones that have to do with hurting other people, David just went down the list and knocked them all out, okay? Um, the, The sentence for David's sin was death. He was supposed to be executed. And he is appealing to mercy. And then the rest of the passage is gonna play out in two significant halves. And I think the best way to summarize it is something that um, a, a pastor that I've looked up to for years who passed away this year named Tim Keller would say. He would summarize the message of the gospel and he would say, the story of the Christian faith is two halves. One, you are more sinful than you ever dare imagine. We'll look at the second half of it in a moment. The second half says you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare to hope. You're more sinful than you would ever dare imagine. And you're more loved and accepted than you'd ever dare to hope. And when we look at how the world deals with sin, and oftentimes, unfortunately, the way the church deals with sin, they usually knock down one of those two halves. They either are so big on trying to tell people they're loved and accepted that they try to pretend like sin doesn't matter. You can just look at headlines at the number of ways in the news that we celebrate sin in the culture and in the church. Oftentimes, we think the way to communicate love and acceptance is to ignore the sinfulness of sin. Or the other extreme is we think to honor the holiness of God, we have to tell people how sinful they are all the time and not offer any love and acceptance to sinners. You want to know the best ways I think you can see this? 
Watch what happens every single time a Christian leader falls into sin. We crucify them. We pretend like they never existed and we never knew them. We wipe away everything they ever did. Now think about what that message is sending to the world about our faith. When you perform well and seem to have it all together, we'll treat you like a celebrity. When you sin, we'll kick you out and pretend we never knew you. And that's the message that oftentimes we are putting out there in front of the world. I'm not saying leaders shouldn't be held accountable. But how often do we hear stories of people who sin and we acknowledge the sinfulness of their sin and the depths to which God loves them and wants to see them restored and healed? And we have to have those two side by side. In my own personal life, I struggle with the two. I pendulum swing between wanting to minimize my sin so that I can feel loved and accepted or knowing my sin is so great that I feel crippled with shame like no one could ever love me. And what the gospel says is, yeah, it really is worse than you can imagine. Your sin really is, like as bad as you think you possibly are, it's worse. That's really uncomfortable to say, isn't it? Peter Schizero in his Emotionally Healthy Spirituality says one of the, the keys to being able to survive people's criticism is knowing that you are actually worse than any criticism they could throw at you. And one of his go-to phrases when people tell him how horrible he is, he goes, oh, you don't know the half of it. Like, we really are worse than we can imagine. To rebel against this kind of God is horrific. That's why David uses so many different words to describe sin in this psalm. We're worse than we can imagine. And yet, somehow, we're more loved and accepted than we could ever dream. How does that work? Let's walk through the psalm a little bit and just, just see what David says in his prayer. He, in verse three, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You see the, the straight up acknowledgement here? No excuses, no minimizing, no justifying. I know what I did. I know exactly what I did. I'm very, very aware and I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I've wondered about that. Like, how can David say against him, against God and God only as he sinned when he had a guy killed? I think he kind of sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, right? How can he say that? I think what he's saying here is he's saying the scale of offending God makes everything else pale in comparison. If I did some horrible sin that affected dozens of people but also was a sin against my family, I think we would say the pain and the effect of those closest to me is a harsher sin. But there's another aspect to it. And I think it is that recognizing our obligation to God is actually the only way that we have obligations to other people. If human life is just randomly evolved animal life, it is actually really hard to defend why a human mistreating another human is worse than an animal eating another animal. It's really hard to defend love your neighbor as yourself if there is no loving God above all. Our demand to love our neighbor is rooted in a love of God. So David realizes that his sin is first and foremost against God and everything else falls under that. 
to God against you I've sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Do you hear that? He says, God, you would be right to condemn me. He's being so direct and clear. You're right to give me a verdict and to judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's saying, not only have I done bad things, like there's something messed up in me, and there always has been. That's a really important part of Christian theology. We don't just do bad things. There's actually something bad in us, something desperately bad in us called sin. Sin is not just something we do, it's something we are. Now that, that is a, a reality that's really uncomfortable and people would love to avoid, but let me tell you why it's actually really good news. If you have a painful symptom that's making your life miserable and you go to doctor after doctor after doctor and they say, we can't find anything wrong with you, that's a really hopeless situation, isn't it? If they can't find where it's coming from, they can't heal it. If human beings are supposed to be these morally neutral, good people who keep doing horrific things, how are we supposed to fix that? But the scriptures are really honest. They say, no, there's something broken in people. Something has gone off in the human race that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the good news is because we can identify what's broken, we also have hope for a solution. Because the psalm next, it begins to turn the corner to the hope that we have. Because not only are we more wicked and sinful than we'd ever dare to imagine, we're also more loved and accepted than we could ever dare to hope. Look at verse six, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David says, even though I was sinful before birth, you also were working on me before birth. You planned something different for me. My entire life as somebody struggling with sin, you've been working to heal me and to restore me. And because David knows that God's plan for him is to love and restore him, David can appeal to that now. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a kind of plant they would use in their worship services to cleanse things. So he's appealing to an image they would all recognize. If I said that a couple was about to walk down the aisle, we would all know they are about to get married. Yeah, because that's a symbol from our ritual we all recognize. So when he says, cleanse me with hyssop, he's grabbing a hold of a ceremony they would all recognize, which means Make me holy and ready to serve God. Now think about this. David is not just saying, let me off the hook for my sin, Lord. He's saying, make me perfectly cleansed and ready for temple service. Restore me all the way to holiness. That's a bold ask. Cleanse me with hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. And look at this, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The man who deserves death is asking God to restore joy to his life. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Uh, David is willing to ask God to forgive him and restore him 
to a right relationship. In fact, he even asked God to heal the things in him that are broken. Look at verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's saying, God, I don't wanna just be forgiven for the things I've done. I want you to work on me so I won't do it again. I want you to start transforming me. You see how much David hates what he did? David says, I don't wanna go back there. So God, I, want, I know that there's something in my heart that led me there. And so Lord, I want you to restore me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, that was a prayer before the Holy Spirit came in the New Testament. We don't have time to go all into this right now. But once the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit never leaves believers. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come down on certain people at certain times for, for tasks. So Saul, King David's predecessor, actually did have the Holy Spirit leave him and quit empowering him. This is a prayer we don't have to be afraid of today, even though it was a reasonable fear for David, because God's Spirit, who's on believers, will never leave us, never forsake us. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, let me experience the joy of being forgiven by you and keep me going. And look at what David plans to do with his healing and his forgiveness. Then, verse 11, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David even says, not only, Lord, do I wanna be forgiven, I also wanna be transformed, and I wanna go serve you and point other people to what you're doing. I wanna help other people not go down the road I've gone down. So Lord, I recognize that I've sinned in a horrific way. Would you, would you even use my sin to help other people not go down this road? Verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. And then he closes by acknowledging what the Lord is really after. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. He's saying, God, you're not looking for me to do a bunch of deeds and jump through a bunch of hoops to impress you. What does God after in confession? My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. What does he mean by a broken spirit? We use the word brokenness. We kind of, this is a little confusing. We tend to use it two different ways in churchy circles. In one way is we talk about people being broken, meaning there's something wrong with us. We've been hurt and wounded. But there's also a kind of brokenness that means our stubborn will has stopped. Our, that thing that resists against God has gone, okay, I give in. My heart's tender. I'm ready to confess what I've done. I'm ready to be honest, I'm ready to be changed. So that, that ironclad will that is resisting God has broken and said, God, I'll let you go to work on me. And this whole picture from beginning to end is painting a picture of how someone can go from the most horrific of sins all the way to being ready to serve God in the temple and in teaching others. Can you imagine that God could do that? That God could use an adulterer and a murderer to be a priest and a teacher? I remember sitting in Rodney Holmstrom's office, really struggling with some of my own guilt and shame and going, I just, I don't know if I can lead people 
and Rodney, this was some of that tough love that I needed. He, he looked at me and he said, so Nick, are you going to let your disobeying God in the past excuse you for disobeying him in the future? I went, oh. <laughs> God's never done with us. And David knew that. So he said, I'm going to call the problem out exactly where it is and submit myself to the healer to go to work. So how does that happen? How does this practice of confession become a rhythm of our lives? I'm gonna give us three steps. I'm gonna ask you to pick one of them. I'm gonna ask everyone in this room to commit to walking into one of these disciplines this week. The first would be to commit to weekly confession, to create a space in your life to regularly make a habit and a pattern of confession. Um, I have several friends in my life that are really faithful people that I know I can go to and I can be honest with and I can confess with, but I have it on my calendar every Thursday at 2.30 p.m. to sit down with Matt Natzel and just put it all out there. And I know if during the week something comes up, I can text him right away and tell him what's going on. He now knows me so well that he can anticipate my struggles. I've gotten phone calls from him at 5.30 at the end of a day and he'll say, hey Nick, Something was said in a meeting today that I know can cause you to tailspin. Just want to check and see how you're doing. And so I have this this great security of knowing that every week I'm going to make it a habit to come clean, to not let heart checks go undealt with. Now, what you need to have that weekly confession time with the Lord We need a priest. The job of a priest was a priest was someone who you could go to and and confess what's going on and they could tell you God's response. And one of the really cool things that happened when Jesus came was he named every follower of Jesus a priest. And he showed us how we can be priests for one another. Your job as priest, and I'm gonna, this is going to sound really bold, and I mean it to be really bold. Your job as a priest to your brother and sister in the Lord is to receive their confession and speak for God to them. Does that sound bold? How could we dare speak for God? By speaking God's words back to each other. You see, we don't have to wonder about God's response to our confession. Look what the Apostle John wrote in his letter. In 1 John, let's go to that uh, 1 John chapter 2 passage there. I'm sorry, 1 John 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It'll be fine, right? Doesn't go well. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What does God's word say will happen when we confess our sins to him? He'll forgive us and purify us every time. I remember sitting with my friend Kyle McCarthy. We were sitting at Slim Chickens. A lot of priest work goes on at Slim Chickens. And I was really struggling letting go of some shame. And, and I, I looked at him and he said, he said Nick, why, why won't you just, what, what's the hang up here? And I said, Kyle, I'm just, I'm so scared that I'm just gonna let myself off the hook. And he said, well, Nick, that's what Jesus did. He let you off the hook. That's what grace means, is you're forgiven. 
And I needed someone to tell me that. I needed someone to, to preach grace over me. So that's an incredible responsibility that we've been given, that we get to do this for each other. We get some more coaching. Um, if you look in, in the, the letter of James, James speaks to fellow believers. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you'll be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He says, this is the work of believers, is to confess to each other and pray to each other. In Galatians, Paul gives some more instruction about this process. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, a couple of points about this idea of confessing to one another. The kinds of people we confess to, Paul says, are people who are walking in the Spirit, which means sharing our brokenness with anyone and everyone isn't safe, right? Trusting unsafe people is a bad idea. Like when my daughter was a baby, if I had just like gone to the grocery store and been like, hey, my wife and I are leaving town for a little while, you look cool, can you watch her for the weekend? That would be dumb, right? That would be dangerous to entrust something precious to someone you don't know can handle it. So when you get ready to confess to somebody, you need to know that that person is somebody who loves Jesus and knows the gospel and will receive your confession and tell you the truth. So choose someone to walk with you that you know is pursuing Jesus with you. Another general rule that I think is, is wise don't ask the person you, whom you have wronged to play this role for you. That's putting too much on them to say, hey, right now I need you to remind me of grace in the area that I've hurt you. Okay, that's a separate part of the process. It's an important part of going to people we've wronged, but that's why it's really helpful to have someone in your life who's not directly involved in certain hurts that they can be the one to play that role for you and then when it's time to go make amends to that person, that person who's functioning as the priest can actually help you through that process. They can pray for you, guide you, and encourage you to go make amends in that process. So the first thing I would challenge people in this room to do is to commit this week to enter into a practice and a habit. Starting in your community group is a great place to find people that you can do this with and create a regular rhythm of confession. Another option, some people in here you might be thinking, I've got a backlog of unconfessed stuff, that, so much that I don't even know where to start. I was 15 years old when I read Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. And in the chapter on confession in that book, he describes a process called an inventory. And he says, you get this safe person and you grow through your life history. You talk about the ways you've been hurt and the ways you've sinned against God and others. And you share your story and what, what's happened. And I remember at 15, closing that book and said, never will I do that. I can't go there. I skipped over that chapter and went on to the rest of the disciplines. And because I was too scared to open up about some things in my life, I let sin and shame fester for another eight years. It wasn't until I was 23, now married and trying to live an adult life as a youth pastor that I went, I can't do this anymore. I wish I could go back to my 15-year-old self and say, do it now. But it was at 23 that I realized I had like just a massive backlog of undealt with stuff and I needed help learning how to unpack it. And Celebrate Recovery was the ministry that God used to help me do that. 
and jumping into that step study, there's, I'm still unpacking things to this day, but that began to teach me the process of doing so. So if you're sitting in this room and you're thinking like, I don't even know where to begin. I can't start a weekly practice because I, I, don't, I don't even know how to start this process. The whole thing sounds so terrifying. Celebrate recovery, I really think is the next step for you. No matter what is going on in your life, I can confidently say celebrate recovery is for everyone in this room. There's no one in this room that would not benefit from that process. It has been a part of changing my life and so many people. So maybe your next step tonight is to open up to Celebrate Recovery. Um, Some of the people from the CR team are gonna be in the center booth after service and would love to answer any questions. I wanna invite you, come this Friday night. This Friday night, um, they have a time of connection at six and then service starts at seven. I would love it if we just kind of flooded their first time visitors group this Friday night. And you might be thinking, oh man, I have huge plans Friday night. Guys, if the car's about to burn up, don't say we'll deal with it later. So I wanna invite you, if you feel overwhelmed by not knowing what the next steps are, CR is a great place to guide you through that. And finally, I wanna suggest, you don't have to leave tonight. If you know God has put something on your heart, if you're having a, a David, Nathan, you're the man, you're the woman moment, you can turn to a, a brother or sister in this room tonight and just share hey, I need to confess this. And so you could confess to somebody with you. Uh, you could grab somebody from your community group. I also know there will be some leaders in the room. I'm gonna ask if you're willing, if you're willing to receive that, just to, just to stand up and I'll, I'll be up at the front and be willing to meet with you. But if, if you're receiving a confession, you don't have to give advice. That's not what you're here to do. In fact, I'm gonna give you some words to say right now to how to speak for God using the words of 1 John, brother or sister. You confessed your sins to God trusting in the blood of Jesus. Because he is faithful and just, your sins are forgiven. So we're gonna take some time now to to sing and we're also gonna take communion because we need to be reminded of the body that was broken, the blood that was shed to make this grace possible. So at this time, I'm gonna invite you to come down, exit out the left side of your row, grab the elements and take them back to your seat. We're gonna sing about this grace and take the elements together. And spend this time asking the Lord, what next step in confession would he have you take?
Take your elements now and grab the bread. This bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. So would you take this and would you eat? Now would you take the cup, the juice representing the blood of Christ poured out for your sins. Take and drink. Father, we love you. Lord, what a gracious gift it is from you to pardon us from our sin. Lord, as we can experience true and abundant joy through confessing our brokenness and you meeting us there with your extravagant grace, God. We love you. We pray these things in your name, amen. Hey, if you wanted to connect with any of the CR team, uh, they'll be in the booth. Our staff will be in the booth to connect you. Our prayer team will be available in the sides to pray with you. And uh, just as a point of reference, would you kind of leave a little more reverently just as we might have some people uh, still praying and, and kind of communicating with one another. So yeah, just keep that in mind as we go.